Mother's Day to the moms that are here. So hope you have a great day. It's off to a good start. Beautiful, beautiful morning. Um, so my dad is out of town again, so I'm filling in for the class for one last time. So you've got me today. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 8. I'm going to have you find two passages today. Because even though this series is on Elijah and Elisha, we're actually only going to spend a minute with Elisha today. And, um, and then we're going to the book of Hebrews. So you should find 2 Kings 8, and then you should find Hebrews 12, so that we can go there pretty quickly. That's where we're going to spend most of our time today. So really what's going to happen is um, this morning we're going to see an example of something that's going on in Elisha's life and the life of Israel, and then see how it really illustrates a New Testament truth. Uh, and then we'll spend most of our time in that Hebrews passage. So Second uh, Kings, I don't know if I said Samuel, I don't think I did, but I did say Kings, all right. Second Kings and chapter number eight, and then Hebrews chapter 12. Are you ready? No? No, that's okay. Usually people just give me the obligatory, yes, we're ready. But Kathy's like, no, wait for me. Hang on. Love it. So Second uh, Kings 8, and then Hebrews 12. That'll send us, uh, save us some time a little bit later. So this class has been looking for several, well, probably for a couple months now, at these events that happened in the history of Israel surrounding the two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. So really quick, just to, for those that haven't been a part of this series the whole time, what's the general state of things in the nation of Israel at this time? If you could just, in a couple of words, say, generally speaking, how are things looking in Israel? What's that? They're on the decline. That's right. The country's not doing so well. Why are they not doing so well? Is it just because they've made poor economic choices or because their, their uh, geopolitical policy isn't very good or what? What's going on? Well, they've failed to do that, right? They've failed to magnify the Lord. And so he's, he's correcting them. He's, he's bringing judgments. And we see one of those specifically happening, and the scriptures are, yeah, there we go, scriptures are on the screen or in your Bibles, it says in verse number eight, or verse number one of chapter eight, then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, arise and go thou in thy household and sojourn wherever you can sojourn. You need to go somewhere, you need to get out of here, you need to find a place to live because the Lord hath called for a what? The Lord has called for a famine, and it shall come upon the land seven years. It shall come upon the land seven years. So the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. That's really all I'm going to read from this passage today. The point that we're thinking about is famine came, a difficult time has come, and who brought about that difficulty? God did. God did. 
And so what we want to speak about, now, ultimately, you could say, who brought about that difficulty? You could also say, you could say God did, and you could also say what? The people did. How many of you have been uh, in situations in life where you realized that it was, you were in a mess, and it was a mess of your own making? How many of you know? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You got nobody to blame for that one. There's nobody to point the finger at. You know, I'm in the situation I'm in, and I'm in the situation because of what I have done. But what I want us to see today is what God is doing in the, in the uh, people of Israel as a whole. He does in the lives of of believers. And it's, this is a really important thing for us to understand. How many of you have ever been in a situation and you stopped and you said to yourself, oh my goodness, I think God is punishing me for something. How many of you have ever been in a, in a situation like that? You felt that way. You felt like, man, whatever's going on, God is, is punishing me for something. Now let me ask you this question. Why is that? Why is that? What is unhealthy about that right there? That statement, boy, the situation that I'm in, I feel like God is punishing me for it. I'm not here to tell you that's 100% incorrect, but it's an unhealthy perspective very often, and we're going to get some balance on that. Why is that an unhealthy statement? Boy, the situation, God must be punishing me for something. I can think of a few reasons why that's an unhealthy conclusion to make, but let's go with one, first of all, from Terry. Okay, I think you're on to something there, so, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Somebody else. What do we, yes, Patrick. Right. This is a really good point. We need to think about that, what Patrick just said. I'm going to repeat it. If, if we're saying that God is punishing us for something in our lives, well, let's think about this for a minute. Who took the punishment of God? Jesus did, right? Jesus has been punished for our sins. If we know Christ as our Savior, we are not punished for our sins. We are forgiven of our sins. We stand, we stand before him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus has taken all of the wrath, all of the punishment that we deserved upon himself. But that's really important. Why else could it be unhealthy to conclude, oh, like, what's going on in my life? God must be punishing me for something. Yep. We're going to talk about that. That's actually exactly where we're going. So that's a good point. So, but that, that's the exact direction. Yep. Okay. That's true. That, and that's actually one of the things I was thinking. Sometimes we know that we live in a fallen, cursed world, right? And we know that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We know that good things happen to Christian people and unchristian people. We know that bad things happen. to So some things in this world are just the natural course of events. Things just can happen. So to automatically conclude, I must be put... Now, a Christian should say... Well, what is God teaching me through this, right? You know, so, so regardless, what were you going to say, Trina? I was going to say, I mean, come on, we had a, a pastor that we know 
Oh, wow. Right. Right. Good point. That's a very good point. So we, he was going to die at some point. And that was his time. And, and the, these things happen. This is the world we live in. Now, so it's very dangerous. Don't conclude. If something bad is going on in your life, don't automatically say, conclude, oh, God is punishing me for something. We've all just discussed several reasons why that is an unhealthy conclusion to just arrive at automatically. So that's on the, so we're kind of talking about a scale, and, and most of us know that in life, most principles need to be balanced, right? It's, it's most helpful that we understand things from a balanced perspective. So with that said, there is what Vlad reminded us about. There is, God does at times take active measures to the, what was the word you used, Vlad? You're, you're absolutely, absolutely right. And chastening is what we're going to talk about. The point of God bringing the famine in Israel was to bring them back. How many of you understand there's a difference between something that is corrective and something that is punitive? There's a difference between something that is corrective and something that is punitive. Now, does God have a... And, and, just for clarification, when I say punitive, I talk about, I'm talking about a punishment, a deserved punishment for wrongdoing. Does God rule with a punitive justice, yes or no? Yes, he certainly does. There is a punitive judgment. If you do not receive the forgiveness of Christ for your sins, the just punishment for our sins is hell. It's what we deserve. It's a just punishment. However, Jesus took that punitive judgment. Jesus took that punishment on the cross. So on the one hand, yes, God does act in punitive justice. Every wrong will be made right. We're going to talk about that in the morning sermon in a little while this morning. But on the other hand, for the believer, for the Christian, God is not working punitively. He's working correctively. So what's the difference? You tell me. What's the difference between punitive and corrective? Yep. That was like a half-raised hand, Terry. It was like... I want to answer, but I'm not sure I want to. Uh, something that is in some of the Punitive or corrective? I would say, yeah, with corrective, there is, there's hope. Right? With punitive, there's just justice. It's done. With corrective, the goal is to bring back. Punitive is the payment's going to be made. If, if, you, if you commit murder in a, in a state that ha still has capital punishment, there is nothing corrective about capital punishment, is there? Nothing at all. There's nothing corrective about it, the, the, except to correct society. But for the wrongdoer, there's absolutely no correction involved. It's simply punishment. You committed this crime, you get, the, you get your just desserts. That is not how God deals with believers. He deals with corrective discipline. By the way, those of us who are parents, that is how we ought to be disciplining our children. 
We should not, we should not punish our children punitively. We should, not, we should not, in one sense, and you could, it's kind of a semantic argument, but we shouldn't so much be punishing our children as we should be correcting our children. The goal is to, to teach them to walk with the Lord, to teach these, them proper behaviors, etc. So with that said, the book of Hebrews talks about this. So to the other passage now, let's go to Hebrews, and this will be on the back of your handout now. The book of Hebrews, and... We're talking about corrective versus punitive punishment. We're talking about restorative versus retributive. And Hebrews, chapter number 12. Now, I want to begin, actually, at the beginning of the chapter. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. If you know the passage, it's, we're being reminded that this cloud of witnesses, we're reminded that many, many believers have gone before us. Chapter 11 talks about that. Many believers have gone before us. Aren't you thankful that other people have traveled this road ahead of you? That other people have walked with God ahead of you? And it's, we don't just, what's really cool is we don't just look at the scriptures, although if that's all we had, that's enough, but we also have the evidence. I'm thankful that I can say, oh, I can look at people in my life and I've witnessed them their whole life follow Christ and I've seen God's hand at, in de demonstrated in their life. Because of that, because of the witnesses, because we've seen that people can walk with God, let us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Isn't that the desire that all of us have in our Christian life? Like, man, I just want to, I just want to live for God. And some days you feel more, more on track, and some days you feel off track. But that's our desire. Let's, let's live for God. Let's let go of the sin that hangs on to us, and let's run the race that's set before us. Ultimately, though, we don't look to the witnesses. Verse number two, ultimately, we are, say it with me, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down, at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3 now. Now, now we're going to come in. For consider him, that's Jesus, that endured such contradictor, uh, contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint. In other words, in this verse, if you're getting tired, if you're in this struggle and to live for the Lord, you're like, man, he says what? Consider Jesus. Consider everything that came up against Jesus and look to him. And now he gives us a really important challenge in verse number four. And this is going to set up the passage. In verse number four, he's going to remind us th this. He says, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Now, that's an interesting verse. What does that mean? Yeah. He's like, you haven't, you, like, you're in the fight against sin. Well, you haven't died. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't killed you yet. Jesus in his struggle against sin, it cost his very blood. For us, it just costs our lives dedicated to him. But the point here is this. I think the, the obvious inference and implication from this passage is what should we be doing as Christians? Because we've been forgiven, our life now should involve doing what? Struggling 
not so much struggling with difficulties and trials, but struggling against, fighting against what? Sin. That's a mission. Yeah, sin, temptation. Like as Christians now, because we know Christ, our life should be. Now, we know that we don't earn our salvation. We are saved purely by grace, but that puts us in the fight. That puts us in the battle. And God is going to help us with that battle. And he's going to use a very interesting means to help us. And as you've probably guessed, the means that God is going to help us fight against sin is he is going to chasten us. He's going to correct us. I saw a hand up. Yep. Patience. Yeah. Patience is going to be huge. And that word patience um, is, it can also be translated endurance. It's not a patience like, you know, looking at the clock, tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. You could also translate that endurance. The, the, it literally, the Greek word has the idea of remaining under something, like holding a he- at something heavy. What were you going to say, Vlad? Um, I was going to say that Jesus is the great equalizer to the Adamic nature. If, if Adam always died, so Christ will be made alive. So we wouldn't have any excuse. Um, the Adamic nature is, um, with Christ, we have a, we can overcome the Adamic nature. Yeah, he's the equal. I like that. Christ, that's a good quote. Christ is the great equalizer of the Adamic nature. That's a good, that's a line full of theology there. The point is this, that you can't say like, well, well, Patrick's such a better Christian than me, so of course he's going he's gonna to beat the sin. Or Trina, Trina is just so much more faithful than I am, so she's going to cover it. And you're all like looking down, don't say my name, please. You're like, don't do that to me. You can't, you, um, uh, that's not an excuse because none of us have the power. The power is all through Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a month or a a decade or your whole life. The only victory in this striving against sin is Jesus in us and his power through us. And so that's an equalizer. Absolutely. I love that. Bill, yes. Right. That's, that's true. I, I would also say that, but if you pack it up, if you put the context of verse number three, it talks about him enduring a contradiction of sinners against him. So I think the idea that all of, all of the evil of sin and sinners was put against him and he struggled to the point of death. So I think that the blood in the, the, the drops of blood would be part of that um, as well. All right, so let's go to verse number five now. So we know this. We know that Christ is working on our behalf, and here's the method that he uses. Verse number five, he says to the Christians, he says, I think you've forgotten something. I think you've forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Well, that's kind of humbling right there, first of all, isn't it? They're talking about equalizers. He's saying to us that we are basically, we're children. And not in the cute and cuddly sense of children. In the bratty sense of children. You're like, really? Yeah. 
Because what's he talking about here? He says, which speaketh unto you. Now, sometimes the Bible does speak almost in the cute and cuddly sense of children, right? Like, you know, suffer the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. And except you become as a little child. But in this passage, it's about kids who need a good spanking in this passage. That's what it's about. That's the context. He says, don't you remember the scripture that speak to you as children? My son, despise not the what? chastening of the Lord. And don't faint, don't wear out, don't be discouraged when you are rebuked of him. Why? Verse 6, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Proverbs Three in verses 11 and 12. This is an important verse both for our relationship with the Lord and a good instruction for parents who would discipline their children. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. Verse number 12. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. Even as a father, the son in whom he what? Now hold that here. God corrects us the same way that a father. Now, so this is important because corrective discipline is getting a bad reputation in our world today. We as parents are, however, it is because, I believe it's because, obviously, of the horrific abuses that have been done in the name of correction. The Bible, when the Bible speaks of parents disciplining their children, even when the Bible speaks of parents spanking their children, it always assumes what is going on, or what is present in that discipline. It always, correction, but what, my, what's that? Love. It's a love-motivated correction. It's not an anger-based correction. It's not a frustration-based correction. It's a loving correction. And so any scriptures that you read about parents correcting their children have to be read within that framework. That as a loving parent would correct their child. Why does a loving parent correct their child? Why? This is, like, everybody knows this. I'm not going to tell you anything. You know, you're like, what do you mean, why? Think about it. Why do we correct our children? Because what's going to happen to them if they're not corrected? What'd you say? Harm. Because children are born in self-destruction mode. It's like there's a switch, and it's like self-destruct mode. Here we go, right? Just think about it from the earliest stages. It's like, ooh, light switch, self-destruct, 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 right? Outlet, self-destruct. It's like highway, self-destruct, self-destruct. It's just what, we, what, what happens. And so we set up all of these safeguards. Now, when my kids were really little, like, I, there were certain things. Like, if they, if they went near to play with the light socket, I would correct them very strongly. Now, why? People would be like, well... 
They didn't know what they were doing. It wasn't, I didn't correct them because I felt that they had, in that moment, this wasn't correction because they had a wicked heart. It was correction because I wanted them to fear the consequences of an action. So they associated that dangerous action with, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because there's a loving motivation that's there, a protective instinct. What are you going to say, Trev? <laughs> that's pretty funny. <laughs> right, great decision, great choice. Good job. Right, now we need that. We need to find those moments. But however, but think about that. Think about how much time we have to spend in the correction. No, 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 yeah. Like, this a lot more no's than yeses. Now, again, we should find opportunities for the yeses and the encouragements, of course. But correction is just a real part of life because we're sinners and we're on a self-destruct course. Yes? Right. Right, right. That's why a love-based correction is so much more, more effective than a punitive-based or a frustration-based. It's like, no, I want what's best for you, and this correction is, to, is for what's best for you. It's more and more complicated the older the children get as well. So, the, and here's another thought. Why... Do I spend far more time correcting my children than other people's children? Other than the fact that they would be like, mind your own business. Other than that. Because we all do. I mean, my coaches correct, coaches correct our children, teachers correct our children. We, 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 we all do that. But no one spends more time correcting my children than my wife and I. Why? Because they're our responsibility. We're with them all the time. We've been instructed. But there's something more here. There's love. I heard somebody say it. And one of the biggest signs, one of the, they say, and they've done studies on this, that children who are not disciplined by their parents have serious long-term effects in their life. Like, it's a sense of abandonment, actually. The parents who are not willing to discipline their children are demonstrating in some degree that they have a lack of interest or love for their children. But someone who really, really loves someone is going to do the hard things to correct them and see what's best for them. And that sets up what happens next in Hebrews chapter 12. It says in verse number 6, Hebrews 12 and verse number 6, For whom the Lord loveth, it's the same, but now we see it in, in, yeah, in Hebrews, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So in other words, if you are a child of God, if you have been received by God, you should expect what to happen in your life. 
correction. So back to our question that started the whole thing. If something difficult is going on in your life, should you assume that God is punishing you? Not necessarily. But could you maybe consider, is God trying to correct something in my life? And I would, I would propose that even in those situations that are neutral, like we spoke about before, even in those situations where just the rain falls on the just and the unjust, even in those situations, even if God didn't actively bring the difficulty into our lives, he has put us in, he has actively allowed us to walk through it, and even in those sense, he's lovingly teaching us something. There's instruction and correction. All of the events of our lives, God can instruct us through, but sometimes God is bringing correction into our lives. For instance, if, if we make unbiblical financial decisions, we shouldn't be surprised if God brings difficult financial situations in our life. Right? To, to, to get us back on course. And, and I've seen God, when we, when we get in line in different areas, then God's blessing comes. Why? Because God, we should look. We should say, God, are you chastening me? Is there something happening? What are you trying to teach me? Now, if you're a Christian, we should expect in our lives this chastening. Why? Because remember, we're striving against sin. God is, wants to give us the victory over sin. Verse 7 now, if ye endure chastening, if you're going through chastening, be encouraged. Why? Because God is dealing with you as a what? As a son. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? What would you say about a son or a daughter that the father was like, ah, let him play with the lace socket. What would, you say to a, what would you say about the relationship? You would probably question if there really was a relationship there. And so, for the Christian, for the Christian, in fact, he says in verse number 8, and there's some hard language in here for us to think about, but it says in verse 8, but if he be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers... Then are ye bastards and not sons. And that phrase is used in the, in, the, in the traditional sense of the word to mean that it's not a, as to oppose, as to um, you have a son who is the one who has the right of inheritance, and then you have an illegitimate child in the house. Now, again, this is uncomfortable language. It offends our sensibilities in the 21st century. But we shouldn't read our culture into the verse. We should just take the principle that's, that's being taught here. The principle that's being taught here is this. If you are being chastened, it is because, it is because you are a legitimate heir to the love and riches of a heavenly father. That's the blessing. So what he says now, if you go on into verse number 9... Furthermore, and he uses the illustration that we've already spoken about, we all have fathers of our flesh, physical fathers who corrected us. We gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. Or that phrase 
as it seemed good to them or in the way that they thought most beneficial. How many of you would say you made plenty of mistakes correcting your children? Because you did in the moment what seemed good. And, and all of us, we can look back at times when our parents did a good job disciplining us and when our tarants, parents really did a poor job disciplining us. But he's saying here the, that our parents, our human parents, they did it after their own pleasure. And sometimes it might have even had some selfish motivations. But God did it entirely for what? Our profit. God is the only one who corrects with completely perfect and pure motives. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, verse 11. No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, unto them which are exercised thereby. Pretty formal way of expressing it, right? Like, but what does this, this kind of, this verse here kind of flies in the face of a contemporary expectation of the Christian life. What do I mean by that? As, as contemporary Christians consider their expectations for the Christian life, how does this verse right off the bat run afoul of those expectations people have about what their Christian life should be like. Just notice how it opens up. And what do people expect? What do people want most of the time? How do they want to feel most of the time? They want to feel good, right? And that's become kind of an expectation of the modern American life. Would you not agree with me there? I mean, do most people not feel, it would seem as if most people, it seems to be like in the Bill of Rights, that's one of them right there. In fact, it's in our, it's in our founding documents. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we have a modern expectation to feel good. In fact, I remember years ago, somebody, um, this was a long time ago, somebody had come to a church service, and it was the only time they'd ever visited the church. And the message that day was a very much challenging message. It was a missions-oriented message, and it was challenging us all about what's really important and what matters in life. The person came to that service, never saw them again. I ran into their spouse months or a couple of years later. And the statement they made, they'd never forgotten that service. And the statement that they made really stood out to me because they said, well, yeah, we went one time, but you know, it was just like, it, it was just kind of negative in that, that experience. And, you know, we just want to, you, you want to go to church and feel good when you leave. Now, would it be healthy to, to every week to leave church just like, oh, I'm so terrible. What am I? That would not be right, okay? I did think it kind of ironic they only attended one service period. But it did also strike me as what was their expectation? What was it they wanted out of Christianity? 
at least in that moment, was to only be made to feel good, to feel validated. But we know sometimes, some, th- that would be like if my kids said, hey, let's, you know, we just want ice cream all the time, right? Or there, if, if, if my child is disobeying, they shouldn't ex- expect an ice cream sundae. They should expect something a little bit different, right? Now, if we're having a great day, there's times for ice cream sundaes, right? I mean, there's times. And they don't always deserve it. And should we give them things they don't deserve? Absolutely. Because God gives to us things we don't deserve. But when correction needs to happen, correction needs to, be, to happen. And we need to understand that, hey, in the moment, chastening doesn't always feel good. But why? It's working something. It's working a longer-term joy. It's a temporary sadness that results in a lasting joy. God loves us, so he corrects us. Yes, Terry. That's a good point. Right. And again, we need to keep in the background that the idea that there is an abundant joy, that God has a deep joy for all of us, that we can know even in the, in the, in the unhappiness of the, ch- the chastening, we can say, you know what? But God is, still, God is still working in my life. And the whole point of the passage is to teach us that. So, um, chastening, it is the blessing of God. We embrace it in our lives, and God does his work in us through us. It reminds us of his love. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've had this morning. I pray that you'd bless our worship service in a few minutes. Help us to honor and magnify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we'll be dismissed for 15 minutes. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know. And we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You could also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.